ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so without question, the biggest story in ETFs right now is these U.S.-listed Russia stock ETFs and also just broader emerging market ETFs that have exposure to Russian stocks and bonds and what's going to happen with these products moving forward. Uh, obviously, over the past week or so, the headlines have come fast and furious. We went very quickly from Russia invading Ukraine to massive economic sanctions being slapped on Russia. Which, uh, Russia then closed their financial markets. And from there, we saw these various Russian ETFs halt creations. Uh, these ETFs then traded at massive premiums. And then last Friday, the New York Stock Exchange and SIBO halted trading in these products. Meanwhile, the largest index providers are all removing Russian stocks and bonds from emerging market indices, which that impacts a lot of investors who have exposure to ETFs tracking these indices. Some of the most popular ETFs out there, by the way, there is a lot going on right now. And so who better to explain all of this than ETF Trends' Dave Nodig, who will join me momentarily. Uh, there's simply nobody better to go in-depth on everything happening here. And so Dave and I uh, will cover the basics. We'll cover the complexities. You're probably going to get a, a quick crash course in ETF structure. Uh, we'll try to touch on everything pertaining to this situation right now. Uh, like I said, this is the biggest story in ETF. So I'll start there this week. And then later... I'll be joined by Gabriel Hammond, co-founder and CEO of Emless, who they entered the ETF market in late 2020, and they offer some unique ETFs, including one that's having a bit of a moment right now with everything going on geopolitically, the Emless Federal Contractors ETF, ticker FedEx, F-E-D-X, 
Uh, if you look at the top holdings in this ETF, as you might expect, you'll find uh, several aerospace and uh, defense companies. The ETF is up like 11% this year. So we'll definitely talk about that. And if you're not familiar with uh, Gabriel, he was actually the founder of Alarian. He was behind the first MLP ETF. So we'll discuss that and highlight a few other uh, MLS ETFs as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nodig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, great having you back on the podcast. Do we have anything at all to talk about this week? <laughs> I can't imagine what there could be to talk about, Nate. I can't uh, even keep up with the headlines. I mean, it, literally, it's hour by hour just trying to track everything uh, involved with this story. And so here's what I thought we would do. Let's start with a few basics, and then I'm sure, sure. I'm sure we're going to get uh, deep, deep into the weeds. And so what I want to do, I just want to go back a couple of weeks. So following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we saw really most of the world respond with pretty aggressive economic sanctions. And we're saying that those continue even into today. That obviously put a ton of pressure on Russia and the ruble. And I think in response to that, probably sort of in retaliation as well, Russia shut down the Moscow Stock Exchange, and they also banned the selling of stocks by foreign investors and other securities as well. So let's just start there. Again, before we get into the ETFs themselves, I want to properly set the table. So just explain what happened with Russian stocks and securities. Yeah, so you know we've seen this a few times, but it is it's worth pointing out that this is pretty untested territory, right? So there really isn't a clear playbook. The actual sort of order of events was post invasion, the central bank which controls the Moscow Stock Exchange in in Russia. Um, first, the first thing they did was they instructed the exchange not to accept sell orders from foreign brokers. So that that's that we would consider that a capital control measure, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not unheard of. There are there are rules around how foreign investors work in Brazil. You have to pay taxes to to put sales through. So like and th- this isn't completely unheard of. Very quickly after that, they shut the market and it hasn't reopened since. So the last sort of actual outward expression from like whether or not foreign ownership of Gazprom was going to be allowed, or honored, I should say, uh, was that they weren't going to be taking sell orders, then they closed the market. And now we're in this limbo. Uh, and as Jason Zweig has sort of pointed out, the last time uh, <laughs> last time Russia closed its stock market was in 1917, and it didn't open for quite a few decades. So uh, this is really untested territory. Yeah, I saw a quote from Demetrius uh, Melis, who is global head of index research for MSCI, and he told Barron's, I just thought this was a, a really good, simple explainer. He said, quote, we haven't seen this level of rapid deterioration across the board. For an equity market to function and invest, you need a stock market to be open, currency to be convertible, and counterparties on the ground. None of the three hold right now. I, I just thought that was a really yeah, good way I, to explain what's going on. Yeah, and I would actually, I, I think that's not even severe enough, to be honest. I think that there's a fourth one which overrides all of those, which is whether or not Russia intends to continue to honor international property rights, right? Like, 
fund, uh, right? Because when we look back at examples where things like this have happened before, you really have to look at things like Cuba, right? Or, or Iran in the 70s, right? Where in those cases, it's not that those stock markets didn't reopen. Those companies ceased to exist. They were nationalized. And, and I'm, I, I, this is a bit of an outlier belief, but I know Jason's wife, the journal and I are, are sort of anchoring this belief system that we actually think the only way out may be for Russia to nationalize some of these companies, thereby obviating all of this foreign interest. Well, and you mentioned the, the Russian central bank. I mean, really, that's the backdrop to all of this in that they're trying to protect the ruble as well here, right? They don't want a bunch of selling. I mean, they're going to have a difficult time protecting that currency here, at least in the short term. But I think, you know, that that's a big aspect here. Um, so, okay, Dave, w- with all of that, let's get to the ETF part of the story. And uh, again, there are several angles here, but let's start with the Russian ETFs themselves, the individual country ETFs. The two most popular are the Vanek Russia ETF, ticker RSX, and the iShares MSCI Russia ETF, ticker ERUS. There's also the Franklin FTSE Russia ETF, ticker FLRU. And then Vanek, uh, they have a, a small cap version as well, RSXJ. So right. these, these all suspended creations earlier last week. They then actually traded at massive premiums, which I, I, I want to talk about that in particular. But uh, then we saw on Friday the New York Stock Exchange halted trading in, in ERUS and FL. Uh, RU, and then SIBO later did the same on the two VanEck ETFs. So, so again, let's take this in pieces just to make sure everyone understands exactly what happened here. Explain the chain of events last week, starting with the suspension of creations. Sure. So, so in order for creations to happen, uh, authorized participants need to be able to put together the basket of securities that you would then deliver in return for those newly created shares of something like an RSX or an ERUS. Um, once you can no longer buy those securities to put in the basket, it really becomes functionally impossible to actually put that basket together. Now, in in the past, we had some cases where there were edges around this. So, for instance, during the Arab Spring in 2010, uh, when EGPT sort of it went through a very similar thing, there were the local exchange was closed, I think, for 26 days in the end. The London GDRs continued to trade. EGPT owned primarily a lot of those GDRs. And so they were able to keep creations open for a long time by sort of modifying the basket to what was available. Once, the, once London suspended the GDRs from trading, which was last Thursday, it literally became impossible to make new shares. When you can't make new shares and anybody wants to buy, it's just like a closed-end fund. So, you know, more buyers than sellers no way to arbitrage it back to quote-unquote fair value. So, of course, it shows up as a premium. With the enormous phrase premium and discount is always relative to what? And in this case, the what would be the last traded price of, say, Gazprom or Luke Oil. Uh, And since those things haven't traded for quite some time now, it's a little ridiculous to say that it's trading at a premium. It's trading at a price relative to a weeks ago evaluation. I, I want to come back to that point real quick. The GDRs that you mentioned trading in London, I don't, I don't want to get completely sidetracked here. Can you, you, can you just explain those? What, what does that mean? Yeah, so, yeah, so GDRs, or in, when they're listed on NYSE, they're called ADRs for American Depository Receipts. They're really quite simple in structure, right? So a GDR, a major bank in London, strikes an agreement, literally just a contracted agreement, say, with Luke Oil. Luke Oil deposits a bunch of shares in that bank's account, that bank then issues certificates based on usually some multiple, usually two or ten number of shares that each certificate represents. And then those certificates just trade like stocks. 
they're not stocks. They don't have voting rights. Um, there, there are various sort of nuances to why they are different. The actual owner of record is the bank that listed the GDR. So once that breakdown happens between, say, Luke Oil's Treasury and the bank issuing the GDR, that GDR no longer makes a lot of sense either. Because remember, there's still things like dividend payments that have to be made. And all of the rails by which those things get done are now frozen, right? So, so G, most GDRs around the world trade either in dollars or euros. Most of the Russian ones traded in U.S. dollars. So in order, for instance, the coupon or the dividend payment from a company to end up in the hands of the GDR holder, you have to be able to go through foreign exchange. That's frozen right now, too, right? Because you're not doing that at the central bank in Russia. Okay, so all of these ETFs, they halted creations. Then they traded at massive premiums. Let's come back to that now. So, uh, again, before trading was halted in these ETFs, all of them were trading at, at premiums. How much price discovery do you think was occurring? Because, look, ETFs are always touted as price discovery vehicles when the underlying markets freeze up, right? We saw that with uh, yep. bond ETFs in March of 2020. I always think about the uh, Greece and Egypt ETF several years ago. What sort of price discovery do you think was actually occurring in these Russia ETFs? Well, certainly it's the only price discovery that was happening, right? So, so it, it was the price discovery for Russian stocks. Now, what did those prices represent? You obviously cannot say that they represented some sort of fundamental valuation of Luke Oil's holdings, right, or Gazprom's holdings. What you were actually getting was a best-case kind of auction on the future of these companies, mm -hmm. um, in, in which one of the potential outcomes had just become not a tail risk, but a central tendency risk, which is maybe nothing from a foreign investor's perspective, right? So zero became a reasonable bound for the value, because if they obviate property rights, then the value truly is. Um, so that, it changed the nature of what we were evaluating in that price, but it was the price discovery. And so Seeing a trade at quote-unquote premiums, again, remember what it really was doing was trading up from its last printed price, right? So it's not really that it was trading at a premium. It was simply up from its last price. That doesn't strike me as an unreasonable thing for it to have traded to, given the chaos that we were seeing and the number of players in the street that are lo always looking for these arbitrage sort of special situations opportunities. So I am quite certain somewhere there are hedge funds and active managers that loaded up on the underlying GDRs and the underlying Russian stocks as, as long as they could until they could no longer get access. And now the question is, will those folks be rewarded by these markets eventually opening uh, and rewarding the investors that held on, or will they essentially have to mark all that down to zero? Yeah, in terms of the price that these were trading at, I mean, in my opinion, you do have investors meeting on an exchange and determining a price. So to, to me, that provides yep. some insight or a window into what investors think the underlying securities are worth. Uh, I, I think that's worth pointing out. And I, I also just want to, I always like coming back to the basics. When we said these were trading at a premium, so the, these, these were the ETF shares, the actual prices that were being traded back and forth on an exchange. The premium was from the net asset value of the underlying securities in these ETFs, which, of course, that was stale because the, the underlying markets were closed. One question I did have for you on that, though, the, uh, the, the, the currency movement. So were any of these NAVs actually changing? So I know the securities themselves yes. weren't changing, but what about the yes. currency movement? Yeah, particularly if you were looking at ERUS, right? And one of the great things, you go to the iShares website, you can pull down the pricing sheet for every ETF. You can actually go to, for instance, the ERUS webpage 
and pull up every day's Excel spreadsheet that shows you the price that went into the NAV and the currency exchange that went into that NAV. So up until these things basically all got marked to zero, um, they were still marked at the last trading price in MOEX. So you could see, I remember looking at this a couple days ago, uh, you could see that, uh, for instance, Gazprom was still showing an indicated dollar price of like $2.90, despite the fact that the GDR was trading at an implied price of like 19 Right, so there was this disconnect because there was this marked price that was only being adjusted by the movement we saw in the ruble, right? Because it was still saying it was still the same number of rubles right. for day after day after day, but the ruble was going through the roof. I haven't mentioned performance yet, uh, but I should note that before trading uh, was halted in RSX and uh, in EROS, those were both down around 80% this year. I think that's important for us yeah. to, uh, to, to note. Okay, so look, uh, you may have seen this. I tweeted this out on Friday. I, I've got to be honest, I was actually a little bit disappointed that trading was halted in these ETFs because I always like to talk about how compared to mutual funds, which obviously can gate redemptions, ETFs at least offer investors the ability to get out, right? It, it, they they right. allow investors to sell in these situations. But that's not happening here. Do you think that's any sort of black eye for ETFs? I know this is an unprecedented situation. We've thrown that word around a lot, by the way, over the past couple of years. But, uh, you know, I've always thought that ETFs, they offer that exit ramp. They, they allow you to sell in these environments when the underlying markets freeze up. Do you think this is any sort of black eye? I don't think it's a black eye. I think that there are judgment calls that have to be made here. Remember, it's the exchange that makes this call about right. whether any given security on their exchange can be traded effectively, right? That can be traded in a way that is rational and orderly. And, you know, yeah, so NYSE made the call in the morning and SIBO made the call in the afternoon. The NYSE products were trading under, underlying the the, the SIBO products were trading GDR. So there's, there's, it's a little bit apples and oranges here. So I don't actually think that we should be throwing mud on one or the other for either staying open or closing before the other. Um, you know, once you really have no underlying exchanges available whatsoever, I think it's actually quite reasonable for the exchanges to say, look, the risk of leaving these things open for trading is that people are going to think these are the live Russian markets, right? I think there's a very real risk that if RSX was trading right now today with oil, you know, going up into the hundreds and nickel at $100,000, the trading in RSX wouldn't be rational right now, right? It would be pure speculation. And I worry, actually, that people would get, you know, they would see something on the screen that RSX traded up 25% or down and imply something about what's really going on here. And that would be specious, right? That, that would not be true. It would simply be uh, speculators moving capital around. So once you've disconnected from the fundamentals, we actually think it's reasonable to suspend trading. But I understand that argument. It's a bit of a sort of libertarian, let the traders trade argument. Uh, in this case, I think the right call was to eventually suspend, probably about when RSX did, when it was really clear that we weren't going to have open markets again for some time. Uh, but I think eventually these things did have to get suspended. And with the uh, RSX and RSXJ, the VanEck Russia ETFs, SIBO did take a little bit longer to halt trading in these compared to the New York Stock Exchange with the other Russia ETFs. Do you have any idea why that's the case? I don't think it really mattered, but I'm just curious why SIBO waited. I don't CBO think it waited. really matters either. I don't think it really matters in particular, you know, to some extent, you know, there was still, uh, you know, it, it was sort of like a day or two delay between when the GDR stopped trading and the, and the physical, uh, you know, Moscow uh, issue started stop trading. And, and the, tr the cessation of trading in the U.S. market kind of followed the same pattern. So to me, it's, it's fairly logical. With the trading halts, 
what, what do you think happens from here? Like, do you think these ETFs will just close up shop? Are the exchanges going to watch the underlying markets and make some sort of determination? I mean, what does the time frame look like here? Well, you know, the interesting thing, we're recording this on the 8th, you know, uh, tomorrow is the day that Russia officially gets kicked out of the emerging markets by MSCI and almost everybody else, uh, you know, give or take a couple of days. It's all sort of happening around this week. Importantly, many of the ETF issuers have already marked these things down to zero based on the indexes rule. So if you open up today the EEM pricing sheet, the iShares Emerging Markets ETF, you open up last night's pricing sheet, you will note that all of the Russian stocks are marked at either literally zero or a penny. So the, the, the hit, if you will, the idea that your Russian exposure went to zero, that's already baked into these prices. You own performance. That's in the NAV. It's in how it's been trading. Um, the, the specific Russia ETFs, however, I, I think it's I'm, if I had to be a betting man here, I don't think they ever reopen. I think these things probably get liquidated at pretty minimal values uh, before sooner, sooner than later. Right. Unless we have some sort of massive reversal of what's going on. I, I don't see any signs that we're sliding towards economic normalcy. If anything, we're now talking about banning Russian imports and oil. Uh, you know, there's discussion about whether or not Nord Stream 1 is getting turned off like Things are getting worse, not better, in terms of returning to economic normalcy. I think these things are going to go to zero. Okay, but I think this gets into probably the biggest question that's out there right now. So you, you mentioned these individual country ETFs. Perhaps they just liquidate their holdings. But the question I have for you is, where do those underlying uh, holdings go? Because let, let's say the Russian stock market does come back online and these securities do start trading again and the various financial restrictions in Russia are removed. I'm not saying that's a likely event, but it's possible Right. And so these underlying securities, the, these Russian stocks could have value at some time. So, sure. so who gets the upside of this? Because right now, investors in these Russia ETFs, they don't have any options. So, so who's going to get right. the upside if all this turns around? Well, so, you know, I think it, the, the way I would frame that question is uh, when EEM actually has to take all of their Russian stocks off their books tomorrow morning, who's taking them? And that is a very interesting and somewhat unknown question. Historically, we've done things like this with toxic asset trusts, meaning you just sort of create a $0 transaction. You create a new trust structure that's got clawback provisions so that if five years from now, all of a sudden that trust is worth a billion dollars because all those Russian stocks have value again, that there's a way to retrench that back to the shareholders of ownership, uh, you know, the official shareholders as of the day the market's closed. I suppose you could do it that way. But on the other hand, you know, as far as like the MSCI indexes are concerned, Russia no longer exists in the Emerging Markets Index. You're not entitled to the move of Russia after tomorrow because any more than, I don't know, some other tiny frontier market that's not in there, uh, Iran or something like that, right? Uh, you're, it's, you're not in that index anymore. Who owns that is a really interesting question. I suspect it's going to be a bunch of hedge funds that warehouse all of these GDRs uh, and local and wait and see whether or not the claims of those GDRs and those local shares will be valued. I really suspect that Russia will simply say foreign ownership is hereby voided, and they they're and they're just written to zero like bad paper. Okay, that makes sense to me on the broad emerging market ETFs. But again, what about the individual uh, Russia ETFs? There's, right, there's but where no do the securities like, go? So, no, they, no, but, but Nate, you're missing the point. If Russia simply says foreign ownership is illegal, right, right. Western markets are not allowed to own Russian stocks. 
then you effectively own a piece of bankruptcy paper. It is literally worth nothing. You've gone through bankruptcy court. The court has said, no, you don't get paid. Right. You don't own anything anymore. That was the risk that you took. Any more than if you bought shares in IBM and for whatever reason we discovered IBM was completely fraudulent and went bankrupt tomorrow. Well, you don't own anything. You were an equity holder of an invalu- a security that went under. 100% understand that. But the question I have is that your scenario has not happened yet. And so no, there, is still, there is so, still a possibility that these could have value. I mean, I think of something like Surebank, who posted record profits of $16 billion in 2021. Now we're saying it's a zero. And it very well may be, again, with everything going on. I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, sort of gloss over the, the very serious situation that, that's going on over there in, in the financial markets. And obviously there's a, a much broader uh, humanitarian and world crisis going on here as well, by, by the way, we should mention. But um but but you, I, no, I think you hear what I'm saying is, is, yeah, these could have value at some point. Sure. So if you own RSX, you can't sell it right now. If and when this thing reopens, you effectively have a low probability lottery ticket, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if RSX opens for trading, feel free to sell aside. If it opens for trading because the GDRs are trading and the Moscow is trading and people have asserted they valued, yeah, maybe your lottery ticket is worth a lot. Maybe you bought it 95% down and it comes in it doubles from there, right? It still may be worth 60% less than it was a month ago. Uh, but, you know, absolutely that you may, you may have an opportunity to do that. Um, but, you know, as it should be, right? If you held all the way until the second that it stopped trading, you hold a lottery ticket. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And, and so my, my question, and you may not know the answer to this, is if somebody like uh, VanEck or, or iShares, how long do they let these zero dollar, I'm going to call them zero dollar assets sit within the, the ETF structure? Because at some point they'll have to make a decision as to whether or not, again, just to close these products altogether. So, so I'm just wondering, like, yeah. how you think that process might go down? Because, again, these securities could have value at some point, but they may make a determination before we know if those securities have value to just close the product altogether and investors yeah, are going I- to get a zero. I, I think it's very unlikely that the funds boards initiate the process of shutting down the funds while there is uncertainty about the property rights of the assets the fund owns. Right? Imagine being on the, the fund board for RSX and having somebody come to you with a proposal saying, well, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen, so we're going to shut this down, but we don't have anybody to sell any of the securities to, so we're going to do this fire sale transaction to a private trust and give everybody <laughs> back a dollar. Like, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say, well, let's do that as opposed to maybe wait a month. So I think the wait a month is going to win every single time until there is real clarity about the legal status of these assets. 100% right now, agree. Yeah, I, I think you open yourself up to legal exposure if you don't do yeah, that. Yeah, why would you do it? Um, okay. You know, I mean, it doesn't cost them that much to keep the funds open while they're not trading. Okay. I, yeah, no, I think we're on the same page on, on that. Um, a couple other sort of random uh Items I want to touch on pertaining to, the, again, still the individual country ETFs. First, do you have any idea what happens to uh, options like on RSX? I mean, there was a fairly deep options market here. I- anything noteworthy on the options? Uh, well, <laughs> the most notable thing is like it's real tough to run an options market when you can't hudge the delta anywhere. Right. So right. I, I don't <laughs> you know that these things are linked. Right. And so all I mean, 
ultimately, Nate, this is all just a chain of derivatives, right? All the way down at the end of the derivative chain is the actual gas pipeline owned by Luke Oil or Gazprom <laughs> or something like that, right? And then everything from there is an order of derivative, right? You've got the corporate ownership, which is then put into a GDR, which is then put into an EDF, ETF, which is then put into an options contract. If you get all the way back to the base of the derivative and that thing is broken, the rest of the derivative chain is sort of irrelevant. It should all just stop trading until you resolve the base. All right. We're really testing your knowledge this morning. What about a short seller? So somebody who correctly shorted something like RSX, how do they close out their position? Yeah, super <laughs> interesting question, right? So, uh, you know, I, I like to imagine this primarily from an institutional perspective, right? But, you know, back in the day when I'm sitting on a, on a desk with a prime brokerage account, right? So they're the ones that got my locate for me. I borrowed maybe RSX shares from my prime broker. They went and got the locate. I sold those in the open market. Now, at the moment, I'm sitting pretty, right? I don't have, nobody's going to call me. It's not like these things are going to race to the moon. Um, but I don't have any way to close that short yet. Now, in the case of a bankruptcy where, where the security actually ceases to exist, that is actually the short seller's best case scenario, right? All the people who were short selling, you know, GME, they were hoping it would literally declare bankruptcy and be delisted, at which point their short self-covers, right? Because they don't ever have to pay it back. That security longer exists. So that's the best case for that short seller is for the ETF or the thing they sold short because then they never have to cover it. Uh, their worst case scenario, obviously, is everything resolves very quickly. The markets all reopen at once, and you don't get a chance to rebuy right now, and you get caught in some sort of horrible short squeeze. Not impossible. Last time I checked, RSX was I think twenty twenty five percent short. It wasn't I mean, which is a lot, but it's not. It's hardly catastrophic. We you know we see one hundred percent short all the time. Um, so I, I don't think we have that kind of crazy short speed setup if everything reopened. But I also don't think we're going to get a chaotic reopening if we reopen. I think it will be very well broadcast, and it will take weeks. By the way, on the topic of shorts, these Russia ETFs, especially RSX, they had actually seen fairly sizable inflows this year. Do, mm -hmm. do you think those were just driven by create to lens, where ETF shares are created for the sole purposes of lending to short sellers, or do you think there were actually legit inflows? In I, no, I think it was. I, if you look at the last five days of uh, five days of, of flow information for RSX before it stopped trading, before it stopped taking new money, it had something like six hundred million dollars in new flow. Mm -hmm. um, and and yes, some of that may have been create to lend, but at the time it was trading up. 20, 30 percent from its previous print, you know, days ago. Um, I think that was people catching a falling knife. I mean, at that point, these stocks were down 80, as you pointed out, 80, 90 percent. That triggers a lot of people who are really focused on these sort of special situations values. I could easily see uh, any number of firms on the South Shore of Connecticut tossing $100 million here and there to take this lottery ticket that eventually markets will normalize. Because guess what? Most of the time, markets normalize from these types of this is not a normal situation. All right. And I do want to uh, talk a little bit more about emerging market ETFs. But uh, let me quickly mention the Direction Daily Russia Bull Two Times Shares, ticker RUSL. That's closing and liquidating soon. Uh, the, the, the NYSE, they also halted trading on this on Friday. Is there anything noteworthy with that ETF or, or situation? No, I mean, that's basically a Balmageddon situation, right? That's okay. where the math kills you, right? I mean, you can only have securities move so much before they just stop being really viable. So not super surprising to see any of the leverage and inverse. Luckily, that's really just this one fund um, that has significant uh, levered exposure into it. But, uh, you know, that's the nature of playing in the leverage and inverse space. You get a big, giant move, and your fund's going to trigger its closing provisions. 
Okay, so let's come back to the broad emerging market ETFs, which without question, this impacts a much wider swath of investors than these individual Mm -hmm. Russia ETFs. So you you set the table pretty well. I mean, last week, MSCI, FTSE, S&P Dow Jones indices, the three largest index providers, they uh, reclassified Russia from emerging market status to what's called standalone status. And actually, uh, FTSE, they're just dumping Russia into an unclassified status. But the, the end result, what this means is Russian stocks are getting punted from emerging market indices. And these indices, right. as I mentioned at the top, they obviously power some of the most popular emerging market ETFs, IEMG and EEM, the iShares versions, uh, VWO, the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF. Uh, this also impacts emerging market bonds, which we can touch on. I saw JP Morgan this morning uh, announcing that they're removing uh, Russian bonds from their indices. Just reset this again. How how does this all work? Like on the stock side, these these Russian stock positions, I think you were saying they just basically get marked to zero, right? Russia is about a 3% allocation in most EM indexes. Yeah, it was, exactly. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it's worth pointing that out because I I think people are sort of – I've had a couple of inbounds where people are really worked up on this idea that like – I own this 3% exposure and you're telling me it's worth zero and you're just stealing that 3% from me. The market already did that. The market right. already marked Russia down from being about 3% of, of these indexes to less than a percent of these indexes before they got removed, right? So that pain is already in the performance. Um, so let's, let's put that out there. So now what we're really talking about is just this lottery card quality these shares have because the, the negative performance is already in. You can't mark it much below zero, right? <laughs> so it's not like you can lose any more money on it. Now it's just a question of what's going forward. I, I, again, I come back to this. If you believe that there's a lottery ticket to be had in Russia and you personally have that uh, edge about global politics, then you should have been buying the Russia ETF. You should not have been counting on your... 2% in EEM to be the thing that would give you that exposure indefinitely. I think the index providers have done the right thing here. They all have stuff in their rule books about capital controls and broken markets and viable currency exchange. And, you know, you can go through the laundry list, check, 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 check. They violated all these rules. So if they had not kicked Russia out of the core emerging markets indices, they should get sued because they wouldn't be following their own rule books. So it's, you can't have it both ways, Right. The, the value of an index is the predictability of the rule set and understanding the methodology. If you either want an index provider to do that and follow those rules or you don't, if you don't, go find an active manager. I'm sure there are active managers out there who are loading up on Russia right until the day they stop closing. And Dave, you probably saw the back and forth a little bit on, on Twitter. I think it was on Friday evening. But can, can you just talk a little bit more about the importance of these uh, th- these products actually tracking their underlying indexes? Because going, I'm not going to I'm not going to head back down the conversation we were talking about earlier about who actually owns the underlying securities and what if they go back up. But I think some people were saying, well, hey, just carve these out, put them aside, and if they go up at some point in time, then great, right? Maybe that it turns back into a three percent allocation of Russian stocks. But that's not really feasible because you have a lot of different types of investors who rely on these products. It's not just long investors. Can can you just elaborate on that and why that's so important? Let's let's just imagine you're a futures market maker. The the ICE trades the MSCI. I think it's the I can't remember the LCUS. I think it is the the uh, the ICE effectively the EEM futures contract. Yeah. If you're a market maker in that and you're taking, I mean, as a market maker, you're long that, you're short that, it's, you're where the action needs to be. 
you need to be able to offset that exposure somewhere. You're going to offset that with some other Delta One vehicle, some other indexed vehicle, whether that's a separately managed with BlackRock or you're using EEM or you're using a product in Europe. Whatever it is, you're going to use an index-linked product, that you, and you need to have some level of certainty that the number on that product, right, the, the net asset value, is going to track correctly because you already have a liability. You're a futures market maker. You owe somebody a pattern of return. So it's incredibly important that all of the index products tied to a specific index all work very, very well because when they don't, you then create actual risk in the marketplace. People end up with unexpected basis risk. That's bad. We don't want that in the system. We want all the risk to be accounted for and to be well managed. Yeah, so I mean, it's really a, go ahead. No, I mean, I was going to say. I mean, the bottom line is, is if Russia is not in the underlying index and it can't be in the the actual product itself, I mean, you're going to yeah, end up with significant exactly. tracking. It really boils yeah. down to that. But by the way, I saw a, a a good stat in the Wall Street Journal. You you probably have these stats on your end, but at the end of January, uh, U.S. mutual funds and ETFs owned over $71 billion in Russian equities and bonds. So we're not talking about nothing here. I thought that was a, a pretty big number. Small in the context when you start looking at the U.S. market, but uh, still, a, you know, that's a lot of money overall. Yeah, I, I, to me, that seems like a tiny amount of money, right? I mean, you're talking about a month's worth of ETF flows in the United States, right? So it's, it, it, I, I get that it's a big, scary number because it's got a B in front of it, but in modern markets, that's like a hiccup in currency. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. All right. The dollars to move around there. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but uh, can we all please give Perth Toll and Liberty Indexes a big round of applause? <laughs> so, so for people who don't yeah. know, Perth is behind the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF ticker uh, FRDM Freedom, great ticker. It never held Russian stocks because of this ETF's uh, freedom weighting. And I got to tell you, Dave, personally, I know you're, you're in the same boat. I just love these ETF stories because that ETF, if you go look at the history of its uh, AUM, it, it was slow going for a while. Didn't really have a whole lot of assets, but now it's up to like 130 million. Uh, I think people are understanding the story. This thing's going to be a huge success. And Perth, if, if you've ever, she's been on the podcast, uh, for, listeners have heard her, but I, I obviously I've met her in person. I know you know her well. She has a lot of conviction around this product and always has. This hasn't been something where, you, you know, she was just hoping it would it would hit at one point. She's had the highest of conviction since day one of this product, and I just love seeing stories like this. Yeah, and I, to her credit, you know, she would have been the first one to say, "Look, I'm I'm not sitting here calling my shots on this market going down and that market going up. This has been about a fundamental belief system that things like." the rule of law, human rights, economic freedom, that these are the things that lead to long-term success and that the lack of them creates these sort of unexpected uh, and difficult-to-predict risks. What we're seeing right now is what she was saying five years ago when she was yelling at me about why I was wrong uh, and convincing me of her product, which she did, to be blunt. Um, I mean, I, I think I chose her as one of the funds I wanted to represent on stage at a big conference, right, where we were uh, screaming her name from the rafters, right? She's, she has been a true believer on this. This is precisely why she constructed the index the way she constructed the index. Uh, you know, it doesn't own Russia. It doesn't own most China or really any China. Um, and, and it really focuses on these sort of potential outlier risks. Now, I don't think she's making a called shot that like Taiwan is next or anything like that. But I think her point has been well proven by the market. 
Yeah, and I don't, uh, you know, tout performance a whole lot on this podcast, and, and that's intentional, but I would encourage everyone to go look at the performance of uh, Freedom versus the other EM ETFs out there. There, there are substantial uh, differences here, at least year to date. Yeah. Okay, uh, Dave, before I let you go, and, and I appreciate that this has been fantastic. I, I just think a great deep dive into this entire situation. But before I let you go, is there any sort of um, lesson in all of this for investors? Because I, I think about this higher level. Investors have always been told forever, hey, you need to diversify internationally. Um, I distinctly recall some fairly prominent people on Twitter telling me that Russia was a value play. Uh, it, it was one of the cheapest markets out there, a great place to be. Well, it's cheaper now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what What is the lesson in all of this for investors? Uh, diversification, which, I mean, which sounds very Pollyanna, but um, think about the difference between your experience if you owned, say, VT or EEM, or if you tried to roll your own with a Brazil fund and a Russia fund, this China X fund or whatever. Um, I think it's very difficult for people to be rational in the heat of the moment and make the right calls about how to reallocate when you're being that specific in geopolitics. Uh, you know, I, I think most investors are probably over home bias still. Uh, and so international exposure is important. And then diversification within that is also important, right? So don't just own EEM, own EEM and developed markets. Don't just own three countries in EEM, own all of the emerging markets. I think that's the lesson we've learned here, right? Because while, yes, it stinks that, uh, you know, the EEM's NAV is down about 3% on the back of Russia, it would have been a lot worse if it had been 50% in Russia, right? And that's why diversification works here. You have a global political disaster of humanitarian proportions, and your emerging markets exposure is only taking a 3% hit on that. I consider that a win. Now, the broader impacts for the global economy is a story for another day, obviously. Well, what, what a surprise. Uh, a successful way to approach investing, diversification. I think always excellent words of wisdom. Dave, fantastic stuff this week. Just such an interesting topic, one that I'm sure we're going to continue to uh, d- discuss here on the podcast. Thank you for well, joining me. I hope me next this time week. I can come back on and we can talk about something a little more positive, right? <laughs> yes, let, let's hope that's the case. Hey, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. That was ETF Trends, Dave Nottig. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. I'm now joined by Gabriel Hammond, co-founder and CEO of Mless, who less than two years ago, in October of 2020, they entered the ETF space by launching four ETFs. They now offer six ETFs altogether, about $75 million invested. 
And I'll tell you, it's a unique ETF lineup, some very interesting products, which uh, we're going to discuss several of those this week. I should also note, Gabriel himself has an interesting background, started his career at Goldman Sachs, founded a company called Steelpath, uh, which focused on investing in energy infrastructure. And he actually founded Alarian, who I think many listeners will certainly recognize for their MLP and energy infrastructure ETFs. Gabriel was actually behind the first MLP ETF, and he's now joining me via phone. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so look, we're going to cover several of the MLS ETFs, but before we do that, I'm always fascinated in hearing backstories on new ETF issuers. So I'm curious, what made you decide to start up Emless? Uh, I know you sold Alarian back in 2018. Where did the idea for Emless come from? Well, I mean, you, you've already given such a great background in the history. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what I've got left to, <laughs> to fill in, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to plug the hole. No, I, I think that uh, a couple things happened in 2018. One, I, I mean, I came off the, the non-compete from the, the Steel Pass sale. Uh, back in in 2013, so that was actually uh, probably even more significant than the the Alarian sale. And, and the other piece of it was that you know Alarian was a significant liquidity event, and my my partner and, and chief financial officer uh, Dave Sexton and I were sitting around saying, okay, well we have a significant amount of of funds that we want to put to work, and there are certain asset classes that we're interested in where we can't find a product that makes sense for us. And, and we were we were shocked. And, and once we went through that exercise and thought about what it would take to set it up for our own investment purposes, we realized that there were probably other, you know, whether it was you know, families, registered investment advisors or institutions that might have the same problems. And that's really what led us to, to set up MLIS on the, let's call it the DNA of Valerian, which is liquidity, access, and transparency, and trying to bring those new or emerging asset classes uh, to an investable universe in a transparent and, and liquid way. So that's that's where we are today. Okay, so let's look at a few of your ETFs, and then I do want to come back to uh, th- this niche you're attempting to carve out in the ETF space. So let's look at your most popular ETF, the Emless Alpha Opportunities ETF, ticker symbol EOPS. This is actively yeah. managed. It's an equity long-short strategy. Just take us through this. What's the uh, investment process? Sure. Well, I, I have known Nathan Miller since... Since I, since I was 20 years old. So I've known him for 22 years. We worked together at Goldman Sachs, and he's one of the most brilliant, critically-minded investors that, that I know. And he has managed my money for years. And it, right again, in that, that spirit, that DNA of Valerian, we, we sat here and we said, you know, goodness, you know, why, why aren't we offering this strategy to people in the most you know, liquid, transparent way that we know possible? And uh, you know, people ask me many times, well, oh, why haven't you been in active ETFs before this? Or why don't you do more? And the fact is, we don't want to do active ETFs just to do it. We really want to have a differentiated strategy. And he is one of the few managers that, that truly has what I would call idiosyncratic alpha, where he's not just banking on the market going up for things to work out. He's not just you know, a high beta play. And when things you know, go up, he, he looks smart because what he held was high beta and it did better than everybody else. He's, he's really doing things differently and thinking critically and um I, I love that about what he's done and we both have uh, you know it's the, my single biggest holding that I, i've ever had with any single manager uh, and so he, he thinks critically on the short side he uses options 
it's it's a very specialized strategy that again typically you would only get in a hedge fund structure and, and you can you know, trade in and out every you know, day on, on on the exchange here so uh, we think it's it's very special and again it's my you know single greatest in investment that I have with with any manager yeah and as I look at the strategy I mean this looks to me like it, it can go pretty much anywhere I mean it holds a wide range of asset classes and investments it can hold inverse and leverage ETFs can you talk more about the strategy itself perhaps the risk return profile that uh, it has, uh, you know, what sort of experience should investors expect? No, that, that's a great question. That is something to be mindful of, is that the returns here will likely be very volatile and, and very lumpy. I mean, to, to be you know, quite honest, uh, I, you know, we, we continue to you know, knock on wood, hope that you know, they will be extraordinary as he's you know, delivered for, for both of us in, in the past. But there will be significant amounts of, of volatility. We hold options. Uh, obviously, anytime you hold options, you could have a you know, a 2% move in the stock price, move that option price up or down 10 or 20%, depending on on expiry and a variety of uh, different other factors. So that is one thing that investors should be prepared for. Is this isn't a strategy that you, you want to trade, quite frankly. It's something that you want to hold, you want to bet on, Nathan. And if you look at the underlying holdings, you can look at the underlying thesis behind every single position here, and it's very defined. Will the thesis work or will it not? In other words, there's a timeline in every single one of these investments. He's incredibly disciplined. We're looking for a particular catalyst. I mean, that's the other thing to keep in mind. This is very catalyst driven. It's not, oh, let's hold the stock because fundamentally we think over five years it's going to grow EPS faster. No, there's a very significant event. You know, we think that you know, Lionsgate is going to divest stars. We think that Kohl's is going to find a much higher bidder. These are very specific catalyst driven plays within the portfolio. And he finds the best way to tailor that risk reward on both the long and short short side using that combination of stock and options. Yeah, and to your point, one thing that just jumped right out to me on this ETF is how concentrated it is. So I show your top three holdings account for over 30% of this ETF's assets. The top 10 account for over 70%. So I, I think to what you were saying, this is very high conviction. I'll also note, because I, th- I think listeners will find this fascinating, um, one of the top 10 holdings, I think the, the 10th, is the Direction Daily Small Cap Bull three times ETF, ticker TNA. So a- again, you will traffic in leverage and inverse ETFs. Um, okay, Gabriel, l- let's move on. I think we have to talk about this Emless Federal Contractors ETF, ticker FedEx, FEDX, which, uh, by the way, how did FedEx Corporation not get that ticker? Uh, but uh, in- <laughs> That was my first question as well when they told me that. <laughs> but uh, anyways, this seeks to own companies with exposure to uh, federal contracts with the U.S. government. What was the idea behind this one? And, and, and give us the overall investment thesis. Sure. I mean, credit goes to Yev Shilkovsky. He's one of our portfolio managers who also sits on our product development committee. And, and bottom line, we think due to a variety of both economic and geopolitical factors. I mean, and we've seen these in play over the last two, three years. Government spending has been increasing, and we don't see that it's likely to decrease anytime soon. So these companies offer stable, through-the-cycle revenues with upside potential, with relatively attractive yields, and, and these are quality names. So uh, we, I, I love this. I mean, through the end of February, this uh, ETF was up 6% year-to-date versus the S&P that was down 8%. So it, it's really come into its own this year. And again, uh, this isn't a a theme that we see going away in the next one year, six. It's not, it's not a play. It's not a trade. Again, this is something that as we look out over the next 
five, 10 years, we believe is going to be a, a persistent trend. And so as we think about, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, is this, is this, you know, aerospace and defense play? And sure, that, you know, that's a significant piece of this exposure, but there's over a quarter in professional services, a chunk in industrial construction and engineering. There's just so much diversity than simply trying to pick defense names and missing out on other lucrative areas that are covered by federal contracts. So uh, again, this is something that is, I think about my own portfolio is something that's got at least a, a five years running room. Yeah, you mentioned the quality names. So the top five holdings currently are Lockheed, Northrop, Grumman, General Dynamics, Raytheon, and Honeywell. And again, concentrated portfolio. Those five account for nearly 50% of the uh, the, the holdings. Um, okay, a few minutes left. We're not going to have time to go through all of these ETFs, but I do want to rattle off uh, the, the, the other uh, products in your suite. So there's a luxury goods ETF, ticker LUXE. There's a real estate credit ETF, REC a Made in America ETF, ticker A-M-E-R, and then an at-home ETF, ticker L-I-V. We started off here, but just talk a little bit more about your overall approach to the ETF market. Like, what sort of niche are you attempting to carve out here? Sure, and I think you've actually hit on a piece of it on both EOPS and uh, FedEx, (laughs) as we affectionately call it. And, and that is the concentration, and, and that really goes back to you know my days as an active portfolio manager with with, with SteelPass. And frankly, we always had a very concentrated portfolio in our mutual funds. And many of our investors would ask us, "Oh, like I don't understand. You know, your competitors have you know 25 names in their you know top 50 percent. You guys have got you know, eight names. Why is that?" And and to me, the point is that you become the market at a certain point. I mean, think about how many different mutual funds and each. ETFs, again, whether you're an institution or an individual investor, that you have exposure to. By the time you wrap that all together, you probably hold thousands of securities in your portfolio. So if, if I'm not giving you our best ideas, if we're not concentrating our portfolio, there's no way that we can truly claim to be adding any advantage over what anyone else is doing. Because the, more, the less concentrated you are, you become the market by definition. And by the time you throw your fees on there, it is very, very difficult to outperform. There are only so many good ideas. There are only so many good managers and CEOs, executives to carry out those plans. So uh, from our perspective, that's, that's quarter of DNA. And, and, and you'll find that in the vast majority of our products. So I think that's what we're really trying to do is, again, provide people undiluted exposure to these different themes as opposed to diversifying it to the point where they really can't get the exposure they want. In fact, we're giving them the market at that point, and and we don't want to do that. Gabriel, just a couple minutes left before I let you go. um, I saw this announcement last week that uh, Emlis made. So you announced you would match all creation fees collected through June 28th to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. And I I haven't seen anything like this from any other ETF issuer. Was there a personal connection here or what was this just something that you wanted the firm to support? What was the backstory? Uh, Again, I've got to give uh, credit to to, to Yash Chokoski, again, one of our our wonderful portfolio managers who uh, spearheaded this idea. And, and, And of course, Tim, who, who brought it to to the group and, and and helps make it a reality from a functional perspective? I you know I, I couldn't be prouder of the team. I, I couldn't be prouder of both a, a, of those gentlemen uh, who who have, have been fantastic with this this effort and and Morgan who's helped get this out into the into the market so that folks know about it on on the, the communications and marketing side. So I, I'm really thrilled of it and, and I'm I'm hoping that it can can make a difference. So. 
And, and do I have it right that you'll match 100% of creation fees collected across the entire ETF lineup, and those proceeds will go to the Red Cross? Is that right? That is correct. Okay. And I saw June 28th is actually Ukraine's Constitution Day, which obviously is why uh, you selected that date. But, yes. Uh, Gabriel, love seeing that. A wonderful initiative. I certainly wish you the best on uh, your entire ETF lineup. Again, really unique products. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity this morning. That was Gabriel Hammond, co-founder and CEO of Emless. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Victory Shares. If you would like to learn more about Victory Shares ETFs, you can visit vcm.com CDC. Next week, I'll be joined by John Mayer, Chief Investment Officer at GlobalX. He's going to go in-depth on thematic ETFs. And then Gene Munster, Managing Partner at Loop Ventures, is going to talk disruptive tech and explain the investment approach behind the Innovator Loop Frontier Tech ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.